You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now... Here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Happy hump day, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. Hopefully, everybody's first part of the week is going smooth sailing. I, however, have been busy staring at spreadsheets at work, um, and I don't know if you guys have ever had the opportunity to look at a spreadsheet for eight hours a day, but let me tell you. It's pretty exciting. Uh, it's pretty fun. A lot of copy and pasting. Um, doing stuff like that. Absolutely love it. And uh, hope to do more of it in the feed. <laughs> I, can't even, I can't even keep a straight face while I lie to you. Uh, but that's what I've been doing. Really busy at work. Um, really busy with the family. And um, man, there's days where life just seems like it's full throttle. Uh, and that's what it's been like around my house lately. Uh, my wife is extremely pregnant and she is extremely comfortable and she's getting to the point now where she wants the baby out and wants the baby out now. And we still have basically two whole months left. I'd say about, um, if I had to guess, I'm going to go six weeks in six weeks, I will have a, another child and, uh, there's a good chance, uh, the day before that child is born that that could be my last podcast I ever put out so it's been nice knowing you guys just kidding (laughs) but anyway we got a kick-ass podcast today and like I mentioned in the podcast I've been trying to get uh, this podcast lined up and done we've had so many technical difficulties with this podcast Um, we're going to be talking with Ted Bright from Missouri and uh, he's going to talk about his evolution as a hunter and uh, we're going to lead things off though with a a really kick-ass story of an elk hunt that he went on with some of his buddies uh, a couple years ago and uh, where four of the six guys harvested giant bulls in this one trip so it's a pretty cool story to lead uh, lead with we're going to get into that here pretty soon but before we do I always say this at the end, make sure you guys go sign up and become members of the National Deer Alliance, please. Uh, Lots of information, educate yourself, um, 
I don't want to beat a dead horse because you guys hear me talk about that a lot. But, uh, you know, do yourself a favor, get educated and, um, you know, hell, maybe even put a little effort in towards uh, some conservation efforts. Uh, you know what to do. It's not rocket science uh, to get involved. It's actually fairly simple. Uh, so go do that. Now, before we get into today's podcast, we're going to hear from Keith Dvorsnak from Ripcord Archery about what makes dropaway rest so special. Well, the benefits of a dropaway rest is you have less arrow contact on that rest, which gives you better accuracy, um, tighter groups, especially at longer distance. Um, it also allows you to get away with a little more hand torque and guys that punch the trigger or anything. Um, like I said, less arrow contact on that launcher, the more accurate it's going to be. If you guys want to find out more information about Ripcord and their product lineup, go visit ripcordarrowrest.com. This year I am shooting an ACE standard, and uh, that thing is pretty kick-ass. So uh, definitely go check those rests out today. Enough of the talking. Let's get into today's podcast with Ted Bright from Missouri. All right, on the phone with me from Missouri, Mr. Ted Bright. How you doing today, Ted? Uh, uh, hey, Dan. Thank you very much for having me on. I tell you what. So this is like the what forty seventh time that we tried to uh, make this podcast work. It, it legitimately the fourth time. The fourth time, right? So just like technical difficulties, phones not working, different like things, just all the bad things that could possibly happened happened. But I think we got it figured out this time. Yes, I agree. We're good to go now. Nice, nice. So. We'll start this like we start a lot of them off. Why don't you tell us where you live in Missouri and what do you do for a living? All right. I live in south-central Missouri, uh, Crawford County. So we're kind of on the, the northern fringe of the Ozarks, uh, definitely in acorn munching land, not, not big buck country, as a lot of people tend to think of Missouri. Uh, so I, I, I sell large commercial printing presses for Mark Andy Incorporated, which is uh, based out of St. Louis or Global Headquarters. Okay. So how far do you get to work out of your home? Yes, I, okay. I work from home. Uh, periodically, you have to go to the office and do a lot of travel to customer right. sites. Right, right. All right, so what kind of printing presses are these? Are these like the size of a copy machine, or are these like the giant ones that print out magazines? Well, they, we are uh, pretty specific to the label making industry. So any type of a label from a bottle of water to, um, uh, you know, a popcorn package to a, a bottle of wine uh, and all of the other labels you would see in a grocery store and the size of the presses uh, typically would be the size of a, uh, a vehicle, you know, a smaller vehicle all the way up to, you know, as, as large as a semi-truck with all kinds of bells and whistles and custom configurations. Nice. What uh, do you, do your printing presses print any, any type of uh, uh, popular brands that our listeners may know of? Probably about every type of popular brand you can think of. Really? Yes. Oh, well, that's cool. Uh, Jack Daniels. 
I am not supposed to say okay. specifically, oh. but just about every major brand you can think of, there is <laughs> some type of marking of the equipment behind the process. Okay, well, that sucks, but I don't know why. And that just says something bad about me if the first thing that popped into my head was booze. So. Well, I kind of liked it, and we have, a, <laughs> we have a large presence in that market. Okay, cool. Well, that's awesome. How long have you been doing that? I uh, just started at the first of the year, actually. Okay, so relatively new uh, territory, or is that like a, a sideways step from a different company into a, you know, just a different company, same uh, category? Totally different company. came from oil sales to, uh, to the commercial printing press market, and my territory currently is basically the Ohio River Valley and the upper Midwest, stretching from Tennessee to the corner of North Dakota, um, the the southwest corner of Kansas, up to uh, the northeast corner of Ohio. So right. lots of big bucks running around in that territory. Yeah. So do you get to – where do you do most of your whitetail hunting then? In, in Missouri or because you're all over the place, do you hunt all over the place? Uh, well, I just started this job at the beginning of the year, so I haven't even had a, a, a hunting season under oh, that's the belt right. yet. That's right. Um, but I, you know, I've primarily held to Missouri. I've gone on a few trips here and there. Uh, you know, I hunted up in Anacostia Island off the eastern coast of Quebec when I was 16. That was my first hunting trip. Oh, sweet. Uh, grew up in hunting in the mountains in Pennsylvania, where there's tons of deer and a few big bucks. And then uh, I have I've gone out west to Colorado um, and Montana, of course, which we're going to get a little more in depth on. And I killed a mule deer in in Montana. Uh, but I, I've done some trips. But really, the, over the last few years, due to the age of my kids and uh, the fact that I was my son's football coach uh, from third grade through eighth grade, I didn't really have an opportunity to take very many out of state trips. Right. Right, absolutely. All right, so you mentioned it, so we're gonna. I want to get into it uh, before we get into the the rest of this podcast. I want you to talk to us about this story where you and your buddies went on this elk hunting trip. What state was this in? Montana. Yeah, Montana. Yeah, Montana. And what there was four of you, and all four of you tagged out. Well, there were six of us, and okay. four of us killed bulls three of which were Pope and Young, and the two guys that uh, that did not bag bulls both missed the biggest bulls that they had ever shot at, and they were the two most experienced guys there as far as going out west. So right. they had seen their fair share of bulls. Uh, it was just an incredible hunt where, you know, it just every morning multiple bulls were screaming all over the place. It was uh, – it, it, it's like opening day of turkey season uh, when they're just gobbling their heads off at all over the place, but replace that 20-pound bird with a 800-pound elk. Right, right. So, but the cool thing about this is the the hunt took place on public land, but there was a you stayed at a ranch and had a guide service out of that ranch, right? That is correct. And now my my buddies, uh, actually the two that that missed those big bulls that year in 2012, they now own the ranch. Okay, so what's the name of the the ranch? The the name of the ranch is the K-Bar L, 
and uh, the closest town is Augusta, Montana, and it's uh, it's a it's a 40 or 50 acre uh, island of private land that's been grandfathered in, and it's all within the Bob Marshall uh, National Forest, which is the largest national forest in the lower 48. Oh wow! I, I, as so, I believe. So it's like millions of acres. 1.1 million is what it is, I believe. Man, a lot of elk in there, I take it. Oh, yeah. The, the herd is large and thriving. Right. Okay. So talk to us a little bit about how this experience went for you. Because, you know, even on outfitted hunts, guys just don't show up to an outfitter and kill bulls, you know, in that period of time. Right. You know, you ran into something kind of special. It definitely was very special. Uh, th- this was the, in 2012 again, this was the fourth trip for me uh, to the ranch and the Bob Marshall Wilderness area. And I had yet to kill him. Previous, uh, I think I went twice with a rifle, and then I uh, went with a, with a bow the year before. So 2011 I went archery, and, you know, it was it was cold. It was like that last day of turkey season, you know, where right. you can't hardly get anything to gobble or bugle. Uh, but then 2012, it was just the perfect timing with the with the, the phase of the rut and the moon and everything. It just worked out perfect. Uh, so to your point, yeah, you can't just go out there and, uh, and have a hunt like this. Everything has to align, and you better be in some pretty good shape because <laughs> you're going to put a lot of miles on. And you're going to see bears, and you know it's a it's just a different world out there, and you're not at the top of the food chain. Right. Okay. So when you went out there, what was the elevation like? Was it was it pretty steep, or you know? Because I think when I think of Colorado, I think of really big, steep, giant mountains that will kill you. But when I think of you know, and this is me because I'm I'm green to the fact, but Montana. May, the 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 mountains aren't as steep up there. Uh, are you still fighting with a lot of e- elevation? Um, how like I take it it kicked it kicked your butt if you weren't on a horse. Uh, definitely kicked your butt, uh, and those archery days are very long because of the time of year you're there. You know you're you're up at four thirty, and if you're you know you're hunting till dark, you're not back in camp until eight, maybe even after eight o'clock at night. So it's it's grab dinner and you know get your stuff ready for the next day and go to bed. Right. Uh, the the elevation is not quite as high as Colorado or you know the places where I've been in Colorado. Base camp is about five thousand feet, and you're typically hunting between that. You know that that's the low spot. Uh, um, you typically go up to hunt, and you're going to hunt anywhere between five and eight thousand feet. And then the Continental Divide, there at the uh, the Chinese Wall, they call it is about 10,000 feet, I believe, and that's about 20 miles west of uh, the KBRL Ranch. Okay. So you're how, how far from the actual ranch were you going out into this public? I mean, how many miles? Uh, typically, you're going to have about an hour to an hour and a half horse ride in the morning, and that's in the pitch black uh, you know, of course, it can be bright if it's a full moon. The, the sky's gonna be very bright, casting a uh, very shadow. But when it's dark, it is dark, and the only thing you can see 
are the horse's hooves creating sparks on the, the <laughs> shale slides in front of you. And you're on a narrow mountain path looking over the edge a couple hundred feet down at points. Or you're crossing rivers, literally crossing rivers in the dark. It's, uh, it's, it's not for the faint of heart, that's for sure. So let me ask you a question. From one grown man to another grown man, did you get scared no, at all? No, no. It, okay. it is just pure adventurist. Uh, it's 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 awesome. There's there's nothing. Uh, it's it's just all pure awesomeness. You would wow. love it. Wow. I know I would love it, uh, <laughs> and definitely want to go on one of those trips uh, uh, sometime in my life. But okay. So you go out there, right? You, you you take this hour and a half horseback ride out, and then they drop you off. Is that at another camp, or are you taking the same horse uh, ride at the end of the night going back to the cabin or back well, to the ranch? Well, you know, it, it depends on, on where you're hunting and, and the, the situation, but uh, a lot of times, you know, they don't want to have the horses out past dark because right. of the bear situation. The grizzly bears yeah. are very very thick in that area. So a lot of times what we'll do is we'll head out at, you know, five o'clock in the morning in the dark, tie the horses up. And if, you know, if nobody's bagged uh, an elk by midday, they typically will uh, send somebody else up to, to corral the horses and, and take them back to camp. And we just work our way back to camp while hunting. Okay. All right. So you get out there and, and lay, lay out the, how many days were the six of you out there? I believe we were there for a uh, six-day hunt. It was either a five- or a six-day hunt. Okay, so five or six days. So you had days where, like, you and your buddies killed on the same day, right? I believe there were two elk killed on the same day at one point, and that really, you know, that really worked some, uh, the, the system, you know, especially for archery at that time. Right. Uh, my buddies had not owned the ranch yet, and the previous owners, we basically had to talk them into allowing us to come up there to archery hunt. They, they, they were not that keen on the archery idea. Now that my buddies have taken over the ranch, that's one of uh, you know they're they're really touting that uh, just because the purest hunters, you know, that's uh, that's what everybody wants to do, and, and it's a it's a great time of year to be up there. Right, for sure. Well, and it sounds like it's uh, one hell of a location for an archery hunter because it's in, I mean, that that ranch is grandfathered in, right? So it's like, uh, uh, it's just a head start every day. Yeah, it's basically an eight-mile uh, horseback ride or walk from where you're parking the vehicles. Right. So, man, that's crazy. Um, so talk to us about the day that you ended up killing um, no, actually before that, I want to talk, I, I do remember something from our, our previous conversation and that was about an outfitter telling you stories of grizzly bear, uh, encounters. Yes. Yes. Virtually every year we're, that we're up there, somebody in the group is going to have a close encounter with the grizzly bear. And that, more often than not, that's just, you know, a, a 30 to 50 yard walk by where the bear most of the time doesn't even know you're there. Or if they do, they pay no attention to you. Right. Uh, but obviously the guides are all from that area and they've got some stories that will make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. <laughs> uh, 
one of the guys, you know, as you spend all this time out in the woods and, you know, you take a break and eat lunch and everything and the stories commence or, or even in the main lodge, you know, over a cocktail in the evening, uh, one of the guys distinctly tells a story about uh, the time where a grizzly bear hit a tree and he emptied his revolver in it and then ended up, uh, you know, it, it, I think it barely phased the animal. And then uh, he ended up staying all night long up in that tree waiting for that bear to leave. Man, that's some crazy shit. Uh, <laughs> not only not only a guy has to like stay in a tree overnight, but the fact that he shoots a bear, what, probably six times and it doesn't like phase it? With a three fifty seven. <laughs> Jesus. That's like I don't know. Like I don't wanna say I'm some huge pussy, but when people start talking about like grizzly bears and, you know, these backcountry hunts, you know, obviously I've never had an encounter with a grizzly bear or as a matter of fact, any animal that I couldn't beat if it attacked me, you know, like if a, if a, a, a dog in my neighborhood came after me, I could probably win that fight. I would, you know, come out with some damage, but I'd probably still win it. You don't win a fight, really, with a grizzly bear. No, but you only have to be faster than the slowest person in your group. <laughs> so, if you can win that, then you're going to win the fight with the bear. So do you do you invite one fat guy, one fat friend every <laughs> time? Yeah, sacrificial like, invite. <laughs> hey, let's invite Bob because if there is a grizzly bear attack, we know he's going to lose. <laughs> Well, I got to tell you, it's uh, it it's definitely on your mind at all times. Uh, right. I think it was the my first trip up there. I I hunted the same area. In fact, I walked on the same trail on consecutive days, and and you know, uh, and there was snow on the ground, obviously, because it was the rifle season. So it's in late October, early November, and I walked that same trail the next day. Over t- overlaying my tracks were bear tracks. It was following my trail from the very day before. Wow, that's Man. that's a that's an interesting feeling, but it's not so bad of a feeling when you're carrying a 300 Winchester Magnum versus a, a stick and string. Right, that's right. Yeah. So let's talk about that very you know that hunt or that day that you were you ended up being successful out there. Um, were were the conditions just I perfectly ideal? They were ideal the entire trip out there. I think the right. the first day we got there, when we, uh, you know, we basically threw our stuff in the cabins, and uh, out of the six of us, only two of us went out. But I, I'm Mr. Enthusiastic, excited, and ready to go as soon as right. I get there. My friends all make fun of me for this. But, uh, you know, basically I wanted to throw the gear in the cabin and head out in the woods it's 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 a known thing that the guides don't take night or anything. You know, it's a it's a travel day. Get in there and get your stuff unpacked and everything. But I'm throwing my stuff in the room and going out in the woods. And right. so I I coached one of my other buddies into going with me. And you know, we get to the uh, to the the river, which is I don't know 100 yards or so from the cabin, and there's no footbridge, so we can't even cross the river. So we gotta uh, pull our uh, pants up to you know. <laughs> So basically take our pants off and cross the river in our underwear and yeah. it is frigid snow melt water you know it's just right. absolutely frigid and the rocks are all slippery and everything we're, we uh we ford the river and we head out uh 
and on that very first night, he we kind of set up in an area that looked pretty good, and I did some calling, and he saw a monster bull. Uh, he said it was at least a six by six. I never could get a visual on it, although I could hear it raking through the brush and everything. And uh, of course, you can imagine how we were so excited to get back to camp and tell everybody, you know, this is it's going to be hot. It's going to be awesome. And that basically set the tone for the entire trip, and it did not disappoint. It was that way the whole time. Wow. And so you got back. You went out the next day. When did you have your encounter? And did you did you miss one first? No, I had I've, I'd never shot at an elk in my uh, you know this was my fourth trip out there, and I've right. been I've had so many close encounters, and I could have killed cows or uh, you know raghorns they call the you know like a, a basket rack, and right. just never have uh, pulled the trigger or would always have that opportunity early in the trip versus late in the trip. You know how that goes, and. Uh, so I'd never actually shot at with a gun or a bow an elk until I believe it was the third day of our trip. And I had had some encounters even that trip, you know, when it was so hot and, and heavy, uh, but never could get uh, anything into range. And then uh, that day I actually went out with the guide, uh, which I, I typically prefer to go on my own, but I went out with the guide that morning. And, uh, you know, we, we set out on, on horse uh, well, I'll back up a little bit. They, you get up at 4:30 in the morning, and they they feed you breakfast, and you go back and get your gear all ready. You go down to the corral at say you know 5:30, and they've got your ready to go. It's truly first class accommodations. And then so we headed out, and we went to a different area. We went back into the timber more, and uh, you know we had our hour horseback ride. We tied up the horses, and we started up the mountain. And we heard one bugling almost right away. Uh, you know, we had walked maybe maybe a half mile, and uphill, of course. Uh, right. We heard him bugling, and of course, naturally, he was to our downwind side. So uh, we had to go back down the mountain and down into the meadows where the horses were tied up, past the horses, and go a half mile to the other side and head up the mountain again. And so we did that, and as soon as we got up the hill a little ways, we called, and he had already responded to our first call and was heading towards our first location. So he was far away at this point, and we didn't know if he was going to come back or not, but within just a couple of calls, it was obvious that he was coming to us and coming to us rapidly. And I, it, it took him maybe five minutes altogether to get there, and the last minute of which we could hear him crush, you know, crashing through the brush and he bugled about every 30 seconds and I, he yes. never even slowed down to bugle. And in the last hundred yards, you could feel the bugle reverberating through your body and he was crashing through the brush and everything. And, uh, finally he got to where he was at 25 yards away. And, you know, before that I couldn't hardly ever see him just because it was so thick. And he right. came to the edge of the opening and he was 25 yards away, and there was a big tree right between us, so I had no opportunity for a shot at all. I was just kind of hunkered down, you know, uh, behind a tree, and then I had that other tree in our in our way, and uh, it, it was about a minute and a half of, of pure silence, and everything right. was frozen, and I was shaking and excited and everything, as you can imagine, and then I'm just wait, waiting for him to take a step. And he did, and I will never forget this. 
Uh, it is incredible how fast those long strides will make their way through that animal will make its way through your shooting lane. Unlike a deer, they take a couple steps typically, you know, this thing, they stride right through there and you better be ready. I basically pulled back and shot instinctively all in one motion and uh, it was at 22 yards, made a good shot, hit front side lung, backside liver. Uh, he turned, he wheeled and turned and you know, I felt pretty good about it, but I knew I hit back a little bit more than what I wanted. Right. Uh, so we, we commenced to tracking and it was about 60 to 75 yards of pretty sporadic, just a couple of blood drops. And then I found my arrow and after that, it was, uh, you know, bloodbath on both sides. And yeah. he, he ran yeah. about 200 yards total. So you had horses that day, right? Yes. Okay. So you were telling me how this works in that you can't, what, what you have to call the, you have to call out to the cabin or something like that. Uh, in order to get the pack mules to come up? Yep, yep, that's exactly right. And, you know, the uh, the Western states are very strict about the use of those radios. Oh, uh, radios, that's right. Right, right. And we would, you know, of course, would never uh, even come close to crossing that line or anything like that. So there's just a known system, and that is when you call for two mules, that means that somebody has killed an elk. If you call for one mule, that means that somebody has harvested a deer. Okay. Whether it so, be a mule, t- mule deer or a whitetail. Right. So they have to, there's very specific lingo that they have to, you know, in, in the communication from the radio to the, uh, for, you know, from the guide to the camp. It has to be very specific because if it's if it says, "Hey, man, I just uh, we just killed an elk up here. There's a whole bunch more elk up here. Uh, you know, send some guy, some more guys over here." That's that's illegal. I think they they just stay so far away from any right. type of being illegal that it's just not even close. It's just, hey, send two mules up here to Lone Tree past Bald Knob and. Yeah. It's incredible how they know how to get there, but they do. And, you know, uh, the minimalist language that they use in lingo is, is you know, it's right on par for, uh, you know, the, the, the type of people that, that live up there and the lifestyle that they live. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's cool, man. Uh, so then they packed it out. And uh, ha- have you been back since then to go chase more elk? I have not. I have not. That that very next year, I started uh, as a head coach of my son's football team, and okay. you know, it's a uh, it's a typically like a ten day trip. You know, over the spanning over over two weekends, and uh, I have not been able to get back up there. But I cannot wait to go. It is a uh, it'll change perspective not only on hunting but on life. Right, right. So, and now your buddy owns it. So hopefully he won't charge you for uh, for a trip, right? If he's a good friend. <laughs> yeah, maybe if I could get some endorsements from some guys that do some podcasts, maybe he would help me out there. <laughs> good luck, good luck. Oh, that's funny. Well, I tell you what, that's uh, that's pretty cool, man. Someday, um, like I, I think you know, and a lot of the listeners know, I got the kid coming in September, and uh, so I had to cancel my elk trip this year. But uh, next year, man, I. 
it's going to happen. I just, it's going to happen. Knock on wood, obviously, but, uh, um, I'm getting out West next year to do something, you know, it's too early to say, but this year's, uh, scratched off the list. Yeah, it's a, it's a must. Uh, yeah. somebody that enjoys hunting as much as you do, you, it's, it truly is a life changing experience. Right. Absolutely. All right. Now, like I got a list here. I, I I like talking about stories like what you what you what we just talked about because I've never done anything like that before, and I just find that stuff so interesting. But you live in Missouri. Last time I checked, there's no elk in Missouri, <laughs> um, and uh, I think today's topic, when we originally discussed this, we were going to talk about your evolution, kind of as a hunter and how how everything has changed from when you started hunting to where you are today, especially uh, in the whitetail woods. But I'm going to just kind of start off at the very beginning, and that is, who got you into hunting? My dad got me into hunting. Uh, my, my entire family enjoys the outdoors, uh, whether it be hunting and fishing, and my dad definitely got me into hunting. Uh, from the time I was a, a kid, that's, that's all I wanted to do. You know, I mean, I spent, uh, you grew up in Pennsylvania and I would every day after school, I would, uh, put a backpack and my fishing rod in and, and go fish the local trout streams or bass ponds. Um, and in the wintertime, I would, anytime before or after school, I could be out in the woods. I, I would be, uh, my very first job ever was at a taxidermist. I would ride my bike to, and I would fish the trout creek on the way back. You know, it was just ingrained in me from a very, very young age, and it's just always been a passion of mine. Right. So it was in your blood from day one. Absolutely. Nice. So your dad kind of got, you know, got you kicked into it. Um, how long, how old were you then? You said 12-ish? Yeah. I, was, I mean, I went out with my dad in the woods from the time I can remember. Uh, the, you know, unlike nowadays uh at that time you had to be 12 years old to to be able to go out hunting so yeah i started at 12 right okay so fast forward a whole bunch of years when were you able to start going hunting by yourself and with what weapon was that i started not too long after that probably that that first year um when i was 12 i probably went out a couple times by myself uh, you know, with the with a shotgun and slugs behind the house, and I can remember missing a doe from thirty yards away and just being, you know, it was like the end of the world. How the heck, you know, what to, right. what's going? And, and you know, everything is so uh, uh, you know immediate as when you're in your younger ages like that. Um, so yeah, I started going out by myself very early. Okay, and then so when you first started hunting. Did you know anything about scent control? Did you know anything about how to play the wind? How did you, A, learn that stuff? And then maybe who were the people who taught you those, you know, taught you those principles? Well, definitely my dad at an early age, you know, taught me how to get ingrained and in, in, down to the minutiae on the detail. Uh, scent control was not a, a thing yet for, for me. And my, you know, my dad has never gotten into it to that level that I have, but he has taught me and not just in hunting in other regards of life. 
how to be passionate about something and, and, you know, totally immerse yourself into it to become the best hunter or father or whatever it is that you want to, you know, to uh, dedicate your efforts. So I've really taken the lead now and, and I have taught him some things about self uh, scent control and so on and so forth. But that definitely uh, came from him. And, you know, he taught me things like, you know, how to, uh, how to climb in a tree stand and, you know, all of the things that were the foundation for my hunting suit. Nice. Okay. So, I mean, you, you had it, there's, there's a time in everybody's life where they go from really liking something and especially the people on this show and myself, you go from really liking deer hunting to becoming obsessed with it. I mean, it is, it's, you're not just thinking it, you are it, if that makes sense. So when did that, when was that point in your life? I, I think that it's been that way since the very beginning. Okay. All right. So from day from day one still. So you've been you've been on fire now for a long time. Just I can very vividly, passionate. Yes, yes. Dan, I can vividly recall a time when I was probably maybe twelve, maybe eleven, something, uh, where I was squirrel hunting and I had taken a buddy of mine uh from school and I was kinda introducing him to hunting and everything. And I was just squirrel hunting, and I was sitting at the at the edge of the railroad tracks, just taking a break for a few minutes. And and a doe and two fawns walked up on me from, and they were ten yards away. And it was a cool October morning, and I could see the breath coming out of their nostrils. And that's it. There there wasn't a hunt, there wasn't a kill or anything. But um, I was that passionate about it that I can still picture it in my mind so vividly. And yeah. you know that's something that's just ingrained in you, I think. Right, right, absolutely. So, do you still do you still gun hunt, or are you more of a bow hunter now? Uh, I, the last few years, I have taken a gun in the woods. I, I I think a total of three times or something, and it's every every time I do it, I'm you know guiding, taking some other uh, a youth. You know, I did it one time last year, and I took my my three year old out with me. Right. Uh, you know, just sitting out by the house, but no, I, I pulled, uh, an 11 pointer, which is my uh, second biggest buck. I think it was in 2013 and I had had five encounters with that buck over the course of, uh, late summer through archery season, youth season, there was an encounter and I ended up harvesting it on the second to last day of rifle season with my gun. And while it was an intense standoff and, and hunting situation, and I'm proud of that harvest at that point, that was really the, my turning point where I've just been archery only since then. Right. I gotcha. Yeah. It makes sense. So for a while though, you were focused specifically on meat or you were kind of a brown it's down hunter. Um, and you know, I mentioned, earlier that this is a little bit about the your evolution as a hunter was was your dad a a brown it's down hunter was he there for the meat or did he practice any type of uh you know age class or antler restrictions no 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 he's got an itchy trigger finger gotcha gotcha so how many years 
did you follow your dad's footsteps? And then what was it? What happened to you where you were, you know what? I want to try to shoot big bucks or I want to shoot old mature bucks or, you know, what was that turning point? Well, in my, uh, I guess you could say my late teens, I was, you know, pretty well enamored with uh, harvesting of deer. You know, right. it's, uh, and, and it's never anything that I've taken lightly. You know, I always try to take a minute to appreciate the game that I've harvested uh, upon harvesting. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, I, I really enjoyed, I just enjoyed it so much that I, I loved harvesting the animal. And then, you know, throughout my 20s, I was doing it primarily. I, I, you know, I, of course, I'm very passionate about it and enjoy doing it. But I did it as a primary source of meat for my family, and my entire family, you know, enjoys eating venison, and so you know that was a, a primary source of food. Um, and then now that my son is 14 years old, um, he has become a proficient hunter as well. He uh, he harvested uh, five deer last year, so that has really enabled me to kind of take a step back and focus more on trophy hunting of which, you know, that's, uh, that's really exciting because it's the ultimate challenge. Right. So, so now you're letting your son do the, uh, whacking and stacking, so to speak, and, and <laughs> exactly. you're out, he's doing the work, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He killed two deer with his bow last year and three with a rifle. Right. So is he stuck just like you are? I, I'm sorry. What was that? Was he is he stuck just like you are? I mean, has he got the fire that you got? Oh, absolutely, yes, right. yes. He's killed three deer with his bow in in total, and all three of them have been on public land. Oh wow! Right, that's awesome. All right, so so now, when was your first year? When would you say your first year of may you know not? brown it's down going you know shooting for a a different caliber of deer and what was it that you were actually looking for uh on that first year of trying to you know probably passing a lot more deer than what you're typically used to yeah it's it's tough to say in the exact year uh just because it's been like you said an evolution but uh in that 20 2010 to 2013 time frame uh, you know, that's that's when the, the most of the uh, evolving occurred. And then culminating with the 11-pointer the that I killed in 2013. Um, and what I didn't really know what to look for. I, I knew the words, and I, you know, uh, three and a half, you know, mature. And, you know, I uh, read all the articles about, you know, how to age a deer and everything. But I didn't effectively know how to do all that stuff in an intense situation or a quick decision type of situation. Uh, and, and you know what, quite frankly, I could, I'll still get better at that. Uh, but that time frame was probably the, the key, key years in that evolution. And, you know, it also coincides with the amount of effort that I was putting into it, you know, with food plotting and, um, I, you know, I put in a lot of tree stands on this uh, private property that I'm fortunate and able to hunt. It's 760 acres close to my house, and I've probably got uh, 10 tree stands scattered around it, um, which, you know, I'm going mobile now, but 
for the last several years, I put a lot of effort into those tree stands doing things like uh, cutting down cedar trees because I'm on private land and hanging them from the tree to, you know, just break down the profile and, and really make it as discreet as possible and, you know, right. some strategic hinge cutting and everything. So, you know, that during those years, I really put a lot of effort into it and it just gets greater and greater. The more effort I put into it uh, and the more I understand it, the more three and a half year olds get a pass. Right. Right. So not only have you taken the step in actually the, the action of passing immature bucks, you've also taken the action to improve some property that you have uh, the ability to hunt as well. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, done some pretty extensive food plotting the last few years. Right. Now my food plot, my food plot experience consists of maybe a fourth acre. Uh, man, it was, it was pretty small. Uh, I failed horribly. I failed horribly at it, but, um, it, it was an experience nonetheless. And I kind of liked doing it. Now I'm not going to make my decision on based off of that really small, you know, I, I did a whole bunch of things wrong. Like I didn't take soil samples. Um, I overseeded, I, uh, there was probably not enough sunlight. I didn't clear out probably as much as I should have. So all these different things, uh, that went wrong. Now I know a lot of guys who, um, we, we talked with a, uh, a, a God, I forget his last name, Brent Gargas. He was on the podcast a couple times. Uh, he, had, he bought a piece of property and he's doing a lot of, uh, uh, uh property improvement for, you know, uh, quality, uh, deer management and, um, on that farm and he fell in love with it. Is that the same way with you? Or do you find yourself loving the, you know, not, not just the hunting part of it, but the, the land management as well? Yeah, definitely. I, I have definitely evolved towards that. And, and now I think that I'm almost to the point where I'm going to get away from it a little bit just because I'm going to go all mobile and really try to get in and get in after the bucks, uh, the big bucks after they get out of their bed. But that said, I, I wouldn't trade my food plotting experience and I still plan on doing it because I want something to fall back on in the late season. Um, but I, I, you know, I'm going to focus more on going mobile, but it is worthy of mentioning some of the efforts I put into with the food plots, uh, that, you know, could could benefit some of the listeners that maybe fell um, uh, susceptible to some of the things that you just mentioned, and that yeah. is, uh, you know, the overseeding all this. And that. I don't take soil samples. Yes, it is the most scientific way to quantify uh, how to address the, the, what you're trying to grow in that particular soil. I don't have the time to do that, and it sounds like you don't either, and probably 90% of the guys out there don't. What the system that I've developed for food plotting is pretty simple. Anytime after July 25th, you can go out and spray lime and fertilizer and seed all in the same day. So I will literally go out to my property with a backpack sprayer and I will spray Roundup to kill the weeds. And then I'll put lime just because without a soil sample, you can pretty well get in Missouri assume that your soil is going to be slightly acidic and lime will help balance that out. So spray, lime, fertilizer, and throw down turnips, rape, and kale seeds and 
you'll have a plot. Now, yeah. if you don't have the right amount of sunlight, you know, it could be sparse in certain areas or whatever. But then the, here's the beauty of it is you, you do that on or around July 25th. I usually try to go actually, you know, a little bit after that, but in that area. And then any sparse areas, I fill in with winter wheat in the beginning of September. So it's kind of way of, you know, uh, hedging your bets. Gotcha. And it, has that worked for you in the past? Yes. Yes. It has worked really well. Right. Now, a lot of guys would almost rather do the food plot work and do, you know, get the food plots in and, you know, wait till the time's right to get out there and, and hunt these, these food plots because, a lot of places, almost all places, if there's a, a really good food source, a deer will find it and, a, you know, doe groups will find it. And then a buck will at some point will make his way to that food plot. Now, why did you decide to kind of back out of that uh, strategy and go to a more mobile hunting buck beds type of scenario? Podcast. Podcast. Knowledge. Seriously. Yeah. Uh, when I started this new job in January, which also, you know, lent itself to not having all the, the free time, uh, to, to do food plotting, but regardless of that, listening to your podcast and others, uh, has really expanded my knowledge horizons. And, uh, I, I feel like it's going to take my hunting to a whole new level. I'm more excited this year than ever. And I say that every year as do we all, but, right. uh, I, I'm going completely mobile. I bought a, a tree harness, and I love the idea of being able to get in tight and close, and you know, be able to climb virtually any type of tree that I that I can. Uh, your podcasts have uh, uh, you know educated me things about the stealth wraps, and I've talked to Brian Landry, and uh, I've got my stealth wraps. I they just got delivered to my house the other day, so. I'm going to use the the new tribe harness with uh, with my quick steps that are going to be stealth wrapped and you know I hope to uh, I know that I'm going to sacrifice some numbers but again I personally don't have to worry about that as much because I've got my 14 year old son stacking them and whacking them right <laughs> you're having fun and he's doing work yeah but he's having right. a ton of fun doing it too that's right that's right if you want to call it work. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you, you just, you're, it sounds to me like you're just wanting to challenge yourself a little bit more. Yes. To, after the, the big mature bucks. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yep. Now for me, you know, and a lot of guys get this information off the hunting beast, you know, uh, Dan Infall, you know, he's a legend for finding the buck beds and all that stuff. And, and he's very successful with it. And, if you're listening to this pod, if you listen to the last podcast, I'm going to repeat myself now, but in Iowa, food sources change a lot throughout uh, the hunting uh, hunting year or the, the season. Uh, you know, you got acorns, you got the browse, you know, as that goes away, uh, the, the, and the food and the egg um, gets harvested. The deer come out to the the uh, fields and they eat whatever's left on the you know the fields. There still may be some acorns if it's a heavy year, but from a buck bed area, buck bed standpoint, I feel that the deer move around so much 
that there's never really a consistent bed. And that's that's been a struggle for me to to go out, scout, and find a bedding area, especially on an active farm where there's cattle, there's horses, there's, you know, farming. That's active farming that's happening. There's, um, you know, it's bigger, steeper terrain it, that kind of funnels off to a, a creek slash river bottom. And, and I think that because of... There's so much, so many different opportunities and places for them to bed that I'm not seeing the big worn out buck beds that a lot of guys uh, are seeing. So my question to you is, have you found any buck beds yet that you, you know, through scouting that you can say, hey, that's a buck bed I'm going to hunt. I, I got to find access to this place on all these different winds. No, I have not found that specific bed, but and I hear you, and I totally agree with you. I don't think that we really have that in my neck of the woods. I don't think that it'll be very often that you're going to find a, a, a big buck bedding in an area to the point where it's beaten down and there's hair all over the place. Right. So my approach in this upcoming season, and this is the first time I'm really getting into this type of hunting, is going to be to hunt the trends, you know. Um, I uh, you have to understand the land well enough to understand, you know, where you think they would be better best on that particular day with that particular wind, and good line of sight and everything. And with my knowledge of the deer movement on those properties, I'm going to hunt those trends and see where it takes me this year. Right. Okay. And, I mean, do you? Do you have any goals for this upcoming season? I do. I do. Uh, I, uh, of course, my my goal typically always centers around, you know, my son harvesting a, a larger deer than, than in the past. And my daughter, who is 17, she also enjoys hunting, not to the level of my son, but uh, always to get her a deer. You know, last year was right. the first year that she hadn't killed a deer in several years, so uh that will be that'll be goal number one is to get my daughter uh hopefully a big buck but uh to have her harvest a, a nice buck if nothing else right and then you know my goal is to uh, it, it's not revolving around a harvest my goal is to take this approach that i've already outlined learn from it and and come up with the next season's goal and i you know uh, it's, it's an evolution um, I'm, I'm not expecting to, uh, you know, read Dan Infault's book and go out there and, and kill a 180 class buck as he stands up out of his bed. That's unrealistic. Right. Uh, but I do want to learn my, I guess you would say, if you had to boil it down, my goal would be to learn more about mature buck bedding and how to hunt it. And that will right. be a successful goal for me this year. Right, and apply it to the terrain on the farms that you hunt. Right, 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 and then right. take that knowledge into the postseason scouting because this last year I was wasn't able to do hardly any postseason scouting, and now with the knowledge that I have from all the podcasts and plugging into the community, my postseason scouting is just going to go through the roof. So I'm almost as excited about postseason scouting as I am for the upcoming season. Right. Okay. So now let's say, you know, this year you're making a huge change from a strategy standpoint, but 
still, if a deer walks by, you 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 have some uh, some goals there as well. I take it, right? I mean, is it gonna? You're looking for a three year old, a four year old. Uh, what like is there an antler size you're looking for, or is it all based off maturity? I'm shooting for a four and a half year old buck. Okay. That's that's the goal. That's that that's difficult in my area, but it's achievable. So is how many would you say in, on an average year that how many four year olds frequent the farm you hunt or make an appearance sometime throughout the season? Uh, if if there is one, probably just one. Okay. You know, right. there there may be a year where, uh, you know, the three-and-a-half-year-old, um, and I believe the, the buck that I killed last year, 145, 10-point, uh, was a three-and-a-half-year-old. Okay. So you're looking for that four-year-old. Uh, do, you, do you run a lot of trail cameras? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Several. Five, five or so. And five cover how many acres? 760. Okay. So that's 760 acres. Um, do you think, I mean, do you think you're going to accomplish your goal? I mean, just, just call your shot right now. What are your, what are your percentage? What do you think your percentage of actually doing this running gun style? You know, obviously this is one of your first years doing it and everybody knows that if you fail, you learn from it, but Knowing what you know about it, knowing how to apply principles, are you? Do you think you're relearning your property again, or is this? I don't know. I think I've asked like 14 questions in a <laughs> in a half a sentence. <laughs> so I, I think that uh, well, first of all, I hunt the 760 acres of private land, and I know that like the back of my hand. I I know the the travel corridors and the bedding areas and everything. So. If there's a you know if there's a four and a half year old buck on there, I feel like I'll be able to put myself in a position to uh, have an opportunity. I, right. I feel pretty confident in that. I also hunt uh, five thousand acres of uh, public land that's you know twenty minutes from my house, and I know the the deer activity pretty well on most of the property. And I between those two, and then I've also uh, recently gained access to 350 acres of which I've never stepped foot on, but I am planning on this week, hopefully, um, between those, I should, I, I would, I would venture to say that I'm going to get opportunities. That's for sure. And you know what? The beautiful thing about it is, is that even if, uh, you know, this is more of a learning curve than what I think, um, when November the 5th comes around and after that, it's just a matter of uh, getting into the woods and spending as much time as possible. Right. Absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. Well, I tell you what, man, as you're, you know, it sounds like you got a plan going into this up, upcoming season. Where do you think that this evolution takes you next? I think I'm going to become the big buck serial killer prodigy. <laughs> <laughs> is the is the grasshopper going to surpass the master? Uh, no, no. I, all kidding aside, that's that's not uh, not my goal. Um, right. You know, I, you look at the those bucks that Dan Enfall has killed, and it, it's quite impressive. Um, yeah, you know, I, I'm, my youngest daughter is three years old, so 
you know, in a few years, I'll be starting that cycle all over again and dedicating myself more to the youth hunting aspect of it. But regardless, uh, you know, my long-term goals are, you know, just to, to get opportunities as many mature bucks as possible. And as you know, and, and all these other guys that are really into this, it's, it's about the process. You know, if you love the process, uh, results will happen, but it's never, well, I achieved that result and now I'm just done. It's the next thing you're, you know, you're focusing your passions on the next, uh, the next mature buck that you can have an opportunity at. So there is not really an end goal. It's just to get better. Right. Absolutely. Makes a lot of sense, man. Well, Mr. Bright, we made it through this with almost no problems. And uh, I'm happy that uh, you got uh, a chance to uh, come on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. And uh, let me be the first to uh, say good luck this upcoming season, man. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate all you do to... uh to further the uh, the education with within the community, it's it's great. It's outstanding. It's been a game changer for me, and um, I, I I do take it to heart. And I I, I hope that every hunter out there uh, that's as passionate about it as us um, spread the word about the podcast because it really has increased my enthusiasm and passion even more than what it was, and it's it can be tremendously beneficial and. Uh, I plan on passing that on to my son. He listens to the podcast with me while we're driving sometimes. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a great way to learn and it's a, it's just a, uh, it's a great way to leverage the technology to become better. Right. What's your son's name? TJ. TJ. All right. This is a message for TJ. All right. Don't let your dad trick you into going out and just doing all the work of shooting all the, you know, fill in the freezer. Make sure he takes responsibility for that and you need to take some of those sits stands where the big bucks are (laughs) he usually gets the choice but uh, (laughs) i gotta tell you real quick this is so funny last year when i killed that 145 uh it was october the 21st in fact it was the same morning that mark jury killed danger the big 217 that he killed uh so you know it's october law but it was really chilly that morning and we, we rolled into the property as, as we're pulling into the gate. You know, it's the same routine every time. He has to get out and unlock the gate. And then we drive in, and, you know, I would drop him off, and then I would drive up the hill uh, so that he didn't have to walk up this huge hill. I mean, it's that's a significant hill. He is trying to unlock the gate. He breaks the key. Oh, boy. Yeah, I, I guess it was really cold, and I guess the metal was a little bit brittle or whatever. You know, he breaks the key. So we literally had to park at the front of the property. I bet I had uh, – mile and a half of uphill walk and i'm not kidding you some of this hill is downright daunting i was sweating you know uh i probably i i think i stripped down to just my my base layer and i packed all my clothes up there and everything and sure enough that was the morning that i killed my biggest buck ever (laughs) well that's awesome that 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 tells you something there like how much damage are you doing driving into your property yeah, yeah, I, I frequently have wondered that. Um, and again, it also goes to show, you know, once you have a plan and you have a methodology behind that plan to stick to it. Right. Um, you know, I drove up to the top of that hill uh, many times and, you know, I thought that I was decreasing my scent and everything. Well, uh, I came in that morning and stripped down to my base layer. Uh, I, 
that, that buck actually walked across my entry trail uh, as he was investigating my rattling. Wow, that's crazy. Well, I tell you what, man, Ted, thanks again. And uh, again, good luck this upcoming season to you and your son and daughter. Thank you very much. We appreciate it, Dan. And there you have it, your hump day podcast done and over with. Thank you very much for downloading, listening, and all that good stuff. Huge shout out to Ted for taking time out of his day to come on the podcast and share some uh, cool stories with us. Also, huge shout out to all the partners of the podcast, Ripcord, Deer Lab, Bighorn Outfitters, Lone Wolf Tree Stands, Exodus Trail Cameras, Ozonics, Gearhead, and Wasp Archery Broadheads. Guys, please go out and support the companies that support this podcast. And I think that's it. Check me out on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, Go to iTunes, leave a review. Thank you again. Have a good rest of your week. And please, if you're going to be in a tree, wear your damn safety harness.